Let me invite you to grab your Bibles now and turn them open to Genesis chapter 1, to that passage our friend Michelle read for us a moment ago. Uh, Genesis chapter 1, and this is also a time where I'd like to call your attention to your worship guide in it. There's a message note outline sheet in there. Uh, You're going to need that tonight. I'll just go ahead and warn you. Uh, We're diving in to a very important teaching. We're diving into a timely teaching in light of kind of where we are as just in our humanity, in this city, in our culture, a teaching that we desperately need to be clear on. In our worldview, a teaching we desperately need to be gripped by in our fellowship of Jesus so that we might represent him well in the world. And and so we're going to cover some ground tonight. Uh, Just go ahead and be warned about that. We're going to be walking through a very uh, significant teaching on the image of God. And if there's any teaching that the Bible presents, the the doctrine of the image of God may be the most relevant that we need right now at this time and in this space. Almost all the ills in the world that you are seeing, from the clash of races to the oppression of others, to the battle of the sexes, to the Recognition of various forms of abuse and neglect and conflict and struggle. Nearly all the ills that you and I see in the world today are the result of this doctrine not being known or this doctrine not being believed in a life-changing capacity. And so we want to wrap our minds around the teaching, this gift of grace that Genesis chapter 1 provides us with, bringing out the revelation that human beings were created uniquely in the image of God. Uniquely in the image of God. I cannot overestimate the importance of that sentence. And I cannot overestimate the importance of tonight's teaching as we dive into the Imago Dei, the doctrine of being created in the image of God. Right now, we do not really know who God created us to be. We don't know why God created us to be. And that lack of awareness shows everywhere. It shows everywhere. But if you and I are able to get this, if our minds are able to apprehend this teaching, and if our hearts would just beat and lockstep with this revelation, with this passage of Scripture, it changes everything. It changes how we see one another. It changes how we see people beyond these walls. It changes everything when we get this Doctrine that human beings were created uniquely in the image of God. There was a guy by the name of Emil Bruner back in the Reformation days of the the 16th century or so. He made this statement. The most powerful of all spiritual forces is man's view of himself. The way in which he understands his nature, that is who God created him to be, and man there is used generically for all of humanity, who God created him to be and his destiny, why God created us to be. Indeed, it is the one force which determines all the others which influence human life. And if that is true, then that means if, if we don't know who we are and why we are, if we don't have an understanding of the image of God, then that's going to negatively influence all of life. But if we get this, it's going to positively and redemptively influence all of life so that we can fulfill our desire in this city 
of seeing lives flourish in gospel-saturated relationships. That will happen as, as this teaching is embedded deep into our awareness and into our worldview. So let's dive in. Human beings uniquely created in the image of God. All of Genesis chapter 1 has been building to that moment. So the beauty and the glory and the wonder of everything that he's created up to verse 26, it comes to a climax. It reaches its peak with the creation of human beings in the image of God. Now, there's a lot of beauty in God's world. There's a lot of wonder in God's creation. There's beauty and wonder in the mountains and in the wilderness. There is beauty and wonder when you think of the streams and the rivers. There's beauty and wonder in God's created order. Even when you look into the animal kingdom and you see the diversity there, you see the wonder there. There is beauty to be beheld in creation. But the one place where beauty comes through more forcefully when we are seeing the world the way God sees the world is in the creation of human beings. This unique creation. This is why Eugene Peterson would remind us, you know, there's more beauty riding a bus than there is scaling the peaks of the highest mountains. Because when you're riding the bus, you are thickly surrounded with the image of God. You are seeing the peak, the pinnacle of God's creation. And he would go on to make this statement. We need to embrace then the people around us with the same delight as we do the hawks. And that's not the seahawks. He's talking about hawks soaring above us, the actual animals, and the violets blooming at their feet, at our feet. Men and women, children and the elderly, the beautiful and the plain, the blind and the deaf, amputees and paralytics, the mentally impaired and the emotionally distraught, each a significant and sacred detail of nature, of God's creation. Don't you love that? Each person, a unique and sacred contribution to God's order, human beings uniquely created in the image of God. And so what I want to do tonight as we think about this teaching and this doctrine is basically two things. I want to see what is it about the image of God that we need to affirm together. And then what aspects of the image of God do we need to attend to together? How does our affirmation of this teaching lead us to care for the image of God in the world? Because this doctrine, though we may love it, I assure you, it is a challenging doctrine. The deeper this teaching moves into your heart, sin has to be pushed out. And that's going to challenge us in a myriad of ways towards the end. But let's start with the affirmation. What do we affirm about the image of God? One, the image of God is universal. The image of God is universal. This dynamic of human beings uniquely created in God's image, it applies to every person on the planet. Every person, regardless of their ethnicity, regardless of their cultural heritage, regardless of their gender, every person on the planet traces their origins back to the fact that God created human beings in his image. We are all part of one human race. This means any thought of a superior race or an inferior race is demonic. It is evil. It needs to be shunned and abhorred with everything that is within us because it goes against the teaching that we are all part of one human race. Now, within the human race, there's a lot of diversity, and we love that. But we all belong to the same family. We trace our origins back to this reality. And within that dynamic, to say that we are all part of one human race 
you see an emphasis here in verse 27 when God says, when it is written, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, and then he gives this description. He created them male and female, he created them. So we are all part of one human race, we want to affirm that, and we want to see that within the human race, God has uh, made us either male or female. Either male or female. According to Genesis chapter 1, that's what we're working with. That's where the or our origins are traced back to. Now, the writer of Genesis could have used the word man. He could have used the word woman. Those terms will come up in Genesis chapter 2, but they don't show up here because uh, there's an emphasis on humanity's sexual identity. The words male and female refer to our sexual identification, that which we usually tie to gender and those types of things. And so we're being told here that we're all part of one human race. We were created either male or female. That's universal. That's what we want to affirm to together but then there's one other dynamic you see in this not only are we not only are we belong to the one human race either male or female existing in a beautiful complementary fashion with each other we want to see how we are both material or and immaterial in other words when God created us in his image he gave us a physical body and he gave us a spirituality he gave us a soul or a spirit that is unique that is distinct to who we are and it is true of every human being on the planet we are both material and immaterial we are physical and spiritual now, fleshing out the spiritual dynamic can be challenging because you wonder, well, does that refer to our soul or our spirit? Sometimes I read the New Testament, I see an emphasis on the soul, I see an emphasis on the spirit. Sometimes I see soul and spirit. What's the difference between the two? Honestly, don't really know. But the point is, uh, we were created material and immaterial, that there is a spiritual dynamic to who we are as having been created in the image of God. You see this in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. When God uh, forms man from the dust of the earth and he physically forms man in that way. And then it says that God stoops down and you get this incredibly intimate portrayal of God breathing the breath of life into his lungs. Because all human beings are both material and immaterial. We are physical and spiritual beings. And our physicality and our spirituality depend upon one another. They affect each other. This is why we want to take care of our bodies, because your physical health can impact your spiritual vitality. But if your physical health is declining, one of the good news of the gospel is that if your physical health is declining, uh, your spiritual vitality continue to increase in light of the gospel, which we'll talk about here in a moment. So that's the first dynamic of this teaching that we want to affirm, that the image of God is universal. But not only is it universal, the image of God is purposeful. It is purposeful that God created human beings in his image. Now, one of the challenges of this is that as you read through the scriptures, you're not going to come across a definition. You're not going to see the image of God defined in an explicit, outright kind of way. But what you're going to see as you read the scriptures, Genesis 1, Genesis 2, and even after the fall, you're going to see the image of God described. The image of God isn't defined in the Bible, but is described. You're going to see the image of God in action. You see it in action in Genesis chapter 2. You see it even remnants of it in action after the fall that you and I observe and interact with on a daily basis. But the place where you see in the scriptures most clearly the image of God in action is when Jesus steps onto the scene. 
This is why he's referred to as the one who is the image of the invisible God. That's where we and I look to see, oh, that's what it means to be created in God's image. That's what it means for the image of God to be refurnished and redeemed and restored within us. So I'm seeing it in action when I read about Jesus in the Gospels. So you have this purposeful dynamic. And, and so when you come back to Genesis chapter 1, there's a few clues that we get into the purpose of being created in the image of God. First of which is that you and I are designed to reflect God's glory. We are designed to reflect God's glory. That's part of the purpose of you and I being created in the image of, of God. It's not unlike, well, let me hold that. If you jump over to Genesis chapter 5, verse 3, you see a description here of Adam, the first man, having a son. And listen to the language that is used to refer to the relationship Adam would share with his son. Genesis chapter 5, verse 3. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son, and in his own likeness, after his image, the same two words that show up in Genesis chapter 1. So there's a relationship between Adam and Seth that somehow echoes the relationship humanity is to share with God. I might, you might compare it this way. I love the fact that when people look at my son, they know he belongs to me. But if you've ever seen my son, you, you, what's not going to cue you into that might not be how he looks because we don't look entirely alike. But if you interact with my son, you're going to see some mannerisms. He's chatty. He talks a lot. I talk a lot in these moments, perhaps maybe not everywhere else, but he's chatty and I can be chatty on a Sunday night. And you, you can interact with my son and you can see that he belongs to me. In that sense, he's a reflection of my glory. And I love it when people identify him with me. And there's a sense when we interact with our humanity, we are designed to reflect God's glory so that when people interact with us and they see us, they can trace us back to our origins, that we belong to God. He's the one in, whom, in whose image we were all created. But not only do we reflect his glory, when you talk about image and likeness and you see how that language is used elsewhere in the scriptures, we were created and designed to represent his character. We are to live out our relationship with God and our identity before God to the world around us. We are to represent God's character. Now, right after God creates them male and female, he says in verse 28, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. In other words, get out. Be like bunnies, right? Get my image everywhere. I want Human beings representing my character in the creation that I set up. So get out, fill the earth. I want my image everywhere. Represent my character. That's part of our purpose. The same language is used in Daniel chapter 3 in reference to a king named Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was not a good king. He was the ruler of the Babylonian Empire. Not a good dude. He's not somebody you'd like to imitate. But he's a guy who knew what it meant to have images everywhere. And so he would set up statues, and the same word for image was used for the statues he would set up throughout his reign and his rule to represent him to the people. So that wherever the people were, they could look at these images and be reminded, okay, uh, uh, um, who our ruler is, who, who's running this thing. And they, these images represented him to the people. Well, the same idea, but in a much better way. When we think about being created in the image of God and representing his image everywhere we go and everywhere humanity exists on the earth, we were designed to represent his character. But not only do you see reflection and representation in the language of image and likeness, 
you see this dynamic of ruling the earth. This is the one of most of the astounding dynamics of being created in the image of God, that we were designed to rule the earth. That's what the language of dominion, exercising dominion, subduing the earth, that's what that language is coming back to. But if we're reflecting God's glory and representing his character, the way we're going to rule the earth is going to be in a loving, life-flourishing-for-all kind of way. And this dynamic is what astounded the psalmist in Psalm 8. When he was thinking about being created in the image of God and what it meant to be entrusted with this responsibility to rule the earth unlike any other creature, uh, it blew his mind. So Psalm chapter 8, check it out. This is what he says. Psalm 8, verses 3 through 8. When I, look at the, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea. Whatever passes along the paths of the sea, he's, what is man that you are mindful of him, that you would entrust us with such a noble responsibility to rule the earth that you created, to be vice regents of God, so to speak, in the world. And only our, to the degree that we get the Imago Dei and we're recognizing this reflection of God's glory and the representation of his character will we rule the earth well. This means that as image bearers, creation concerned, creation care should be a concern of ours. Creation care should be a concern of ours because it is a concern of the image of God. It is something God set up in our origin. So one of the ways that we echo Eden is by being good stewards of the earth, of our time and our space in this world. And we'll talk about some of that in a little bit. But for now, understand, we are designed to rule God's creation now, another thing we want to affirm about the image of God, not only is it universal and not only is it purposeful, this one's incredibly important for us tonight because some of you may be thinking that the image of God has been dismissed as a result of sin in the world or as a result of the fall. So the third aspect of what we want to affirm about the image of God is that the image of God is ultimately irrevocable. The image of God is irrevocable. When sin entered the world in Genesis chapter 3, it did not revoke the Imago Dei. It did not revoke the image of God that human beings were created in. Now, it certainly distorted the image, right? It jacked things up. It distorted the image of God, but it did not dismiss the image of God entirely. This is why as you read through the Bible, you see other references to the image of God, and there's an ethic attached to it. That this teaching should determine the ethics that we champion in the world. For example, Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. The prohibition God lays down there against murdering another person. Why? Well, it's because they were created in the image of God. So there's still something about having been created in the image of God that brings dignity to life so that we should not murder someone because if we murder someone, we're killing an image bearer even after the fall, even if sin is in the picture. If we do, we are, we are destroying an image bearer and that's the type of thing that God hates. 
But it doesn't just stop in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. You move on into the New Testament, James chapter 3. There's a reference there to the image of God, and, and it's attached to the ethic of how we talk about one another, how we use our tongues and our mouths in speech. And he's talking about some hypocrisy that can often pop up in our lives and often pop up in the church, so that in James chapter 3, verse, I believe it's 9, we read this. With it, referring to our mouths, with our mouths, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we also curse people who are made in the image of God. Why do we not want to curse people? The imago Dei, the image of God. It's still operative in a sense that this understanding determines our ethics. So the image of God is not revocable. Sin has distorted it so that we no longer reflect God's glory. We don't, we're not positioned to him in a way that reflects his glory as originally intended. We're not representing his character anymore because of sin. There, there's, something's gone sideways with that. And we don't rule the earth in a loving, life-flourishing kind of way. Instead, what does humanity do? Humanity dominates the earth. We domineer the earth. We don't exercise dominion. We Use resources for ways that don't promote life for all, but just life for some, and that's a problem. That's an affront against the image of God, according to this teaching and this paradigm. So, if that is true, if sin distorts the image of God and sin does not dismiss the image of God, then what do we do with it? How are we to interact with the image of God today outside of Eden in a fallen world? Well, since the image of God is not revocable since it hasn't been dismissed entirely that means you and I can still and I love this we can still hear echoes of the imago day coming out of humanity even in the midst of our sin echoes of the image of God continue to reverberate throughout the world and it does so according to our capacities you think about some of our capacities you hear echoes of the image of God in humanity's spiritual capacity why do you think religions exist? Why do you think spirituality is pursued and practiced by so many people in so many different types of ways? Well, it's because the image of God is still echoing forth. There is a God-shaped hole in our creation that says we were created as spiritual beings and that spirituality is still expressing itself. Now, we know sin has distorted our spirituality so that we have things that, that God do, do not honor God, that don't point us to the creator and don't come to the creator through the Christ, as we'll talk about in a moment. But anytime you see somebody exercising or participating in religion or a form of spirituality, that is an echo of the image of God. That is an aspect of who we were originally intended to be, even if it's been distorted by sin and confusion and deception in the world that is. But not only do you hear echoes of the image of God in our spiritual capacities, you hear it in our emotional, our, our moral sensitivities as well. Our moral sensitivities, you know, they... There's a sense in every human being that, that knows that there is something called right and that there is something called wrong. Now, we might not know exactly what is right and what is wrong, but there's a sensibility within us that suggests and that echoes forth something's right, something's wrong. Where do you think our sense of justice comes from? Where do you think our recognition of injustice and depression and how much a wide swath of humanity hates that and speaks out against that? Well, it's the echo of the Imago Dei in fallen humanity, moral sensitivities. 
We have a sense that there is a right, that there is a wrong, that there is something called justice and there is something called injustice. We may not be clear on what that is, but that it is, is an echo of the image of God within the human condition. You might also say that there's a sense in which the, this moral sensitivity echoes every time you see tragedy in the world. When a flood strikes Houston, Texas, or an earthquake hits Mexico, it's not just Christians who, who stand up and go to action. Now, the churches usually in those situations lead the charge. That's fairly clear statistically. But there's a wide swath of humanity that says we must do something to help people who are hurting, help people who are suffering in those situations. And what's going on there is the echo of the image of God. We're not paying attention to the news after an earthquake to find out the body count of pets in Mexico. Because we know instinctively that human life is precious, that human life has as a distinct priority in the created order. So what are we paying attention to? Well, we're paying attention to the body count of human beings. And our heart goes out in those moments. We hurt for those moments because we understand that that is the image of God suffering and hurting in those natural disasters. And so we want to do something about it and rally to help. What is that? It's the, it's the echo of the image of God in humanity. But not only do you see it in our moral capacities, you see it in our mental capacities as well. The fact that human beings can think abstract thoughts. No other creature on the planet can do that. Your dog may be smart, but he's not that smart, right? Your dog might be able to learn some tricks through fear of punishment or the promise of an immediate reward, but he's not thinking abstractly about why it's good to do good things and why it's good to obey the master in an abstract kind of way. He's doing it out of fear or out of just, I want that treat, right? But human beings, we think on a different plane. We are able to give ourselves to abstract thinking. Now, we may reason ourselves and logic ourselves into a corner, which is what we do all the time, because in our fallen state, there is a roof to our reason, Right? And we paint ourselves into a corner. But the exercise of that mental capacity is an echo of the image of God that is still present in the world today. So you see it in abstract thinking. You see it in our concept of time, past, present, and future. You see it in a myriad of ways, the, the mental capacity of humanity, an echo of the image of God. And then one more I would point out. Not only do you see it there, you see it in our creative passions as well. Having been created in the image of God and and knowing that sin has come in and distorted the image but hasn't dismissed that image, that there are still echoes of the image of God at work in the world today, and you can see that through the creative passions of humanity. Art, literature, music, technology, what is that? It is the image of God echoing forth. I want to express myself. I want to show truth. I want to show what I believe to be true or what I believe to be beautiful. I want to present this to the world. Every time you see creative passions being exercised in the world, you can affirm the image of, uh, the image of God because it's an echo of that image coming out and coming forth. It's a wonderful thing to know that the image of God has not been revoked by the presence of sin in the world. That you and I can, if we're looking at the world through this lens, and this is how it becomes our worldview, you and I will be able to celebrate all of these capacities in a God-honoring kind of way. And we'll be able to recognize this, and it will help us minister to people to come back to the Creator and to find themselves in relationship with the God who made them and the God who loved them enough to send Jesus to die for them. This is why Philip Jose Farmer would say what he says in that quote you read earlier. It is no idle phrase that man was made in God's image. 
There is something worth saving in the worst of us. There's something worth saving in the worst of us. What is that? It's the fact that we were created in the image of God. And no matter how bad a person may be, that image never gets revoked. There's still potential there. And from our perspective, there's still possibility there. There's still an awareness of knowing this is an image bearer. And he may be in a tough spot. He may end up being in a bad space. He may be explicitly evil in a myriad of ways. But there's something even in the worst of us that is, that is worthy of saving. And so it is out of this something, whatever that echo of the image of God is, it is out of that something where a new man may be fashioned. And so that brings us to the next affirmation for tonight. Not only is the image of God irrevocable, the image of God is redeemable. And this is where we're banking our hope, right? This is where we're impressing our lives, that the image of God is redeemable. In fact, that is the goal of the gospel. So that when God would send his son Jesus into the world, he would come to do that for us, to redeem the Imago Dei, to redeem us and to reshape us into the image that we were originally created and even more so, you'll see, in a moment. But Jesus steps in and in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, would say that he is the image of the invisible God. You want to see what it means to be created in God's image? Look to Jesus. See how he reflects God's glory. See how he represents God's character. See how he exercises his dominion and subdues the earth. What's he doing? He's walking on water. He's healing the sick. He's doing these incredible, these incredible things as, as the perfect image bearer of God to ever step into the world. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 would say a very similar thing. That Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. In other words, Jesus is our blueprint. You want to know what the image of God looks like in action? Look to Jesus. He's our blueprint. He's our model. He's the manifestation of who we were originally created and intended to be in terms of the image aspects. And so in salvation, the image of God, and if we come to this Jesus... The image of God is what he's targeting. It's the image of God that Jesus is seeking to redeem and to restore and to bring out. I'll show you in a couple of ways. Colossians chapter 3 verse 10. When you become a follower of Jesus and the gospel begins to produce change in you, you step into relationship with Jesus. We're told to put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. That which was lost at the fall is now being renewed. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 24, put on the new self created after the likeness of God and in true righteousness and holiness. Put on the new self created after the likeness of God. Let the image of God be renewed and restored within you. That's what salvation is all about. The image of God is redeemable. That's why Jesus came. That's why he lived and he died and he rose again to recreate us, to bring us back and even beyond, so to speak, to who we were designed to be. And so we look to Jesus and you might think, okay, well, if that's true, if, if he is this and he wants to do this in us, how does that happen? How do we move from who he is to what he wants to do? How does that happen? Well, we're told in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. Let me lay this out as an example. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. And we all with unveiled face. In other words, in that passage, that unveiled face is a reference to unbelief. That it's a reference to being deceived. 
But now he's saying that veil has been removed. We now have an unveiled face. We, we now can believe. We can see the beauty of God in Jesus. And this is what goes down. He says, now with unveiled face, our eyes are open. The veil of unbelief has been removed. Beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So how does it happen? You behold the glory of God in the person of Jesus. You behold the, the character of God in the death and resurrection of Jesus. You behold the glory of God in Jesus' authority over all things and his promise to come back and to recreate everything, ushering in a new heavens and a new earth. What that means, we look to Jesus in faith. And when we are turning our attention to Jesus in faith, our lives begin to change. The glory of God begins to bounce off of us the way the light bounces off the moon, the light of the sun bounces off the moon. It, his character begins to be reshaped in us as we learn more about Jesus and we commune with Jesus and we study the scriptures about Jesus. Our character becomes changed so that we're now representing God's character in the world that he created and we're moving towards this rulership. So that we begin to rule the earth, so to speak, in a loving, redemptive kind of way. So the image of God is redeemable and that redemption comes by looking to Jesus, looking to Jesus, looking to Jesus. That's what we, that's what we do. But there's one other dynamic that I just want to tickle your fancy with tonight. And that's this dynamic that not only is the image of God redeemable, the image of God in light of the gospel is actually surpassable. And here's what I mean by that. In salvation, when you step into Jesus and he begins to change your life, you and I are not simply being restored to our pre-fallen condition. What Jesus is doing in us is going to surpass who we were in Eden. We are new creations having been recreated. You see this hinted at in a variety of places in the scriptures. Romans chapter 6, for example, where sin abounds, grace does much more. There's a sense in which a diamond shines more brightly against a dark backdrop, right? So there's something coming out of the fallen created humanity, our fallenness. There's a redemption coming that's going to outshine the splendor that was had by Adam in Eden. It's a mind-blowing thing, but this is what Isaac Watts, the author of Amazing Grace, is getting after when he wrote these words. He says, in Jesus or in Christ, the tribes of Adam boast more blessings than their father lost. We have more blessings coming to us in our being recreated in the image of Christ than Adam had in his original creation. What are some of those blessings? Well, you, some of those blessings take the form of forgiveness, knowing that when we go to heaven, we're going to be with a God who, with a God who forgave us. That's a blessing that surpasses who Adam was in Eden. It means thinking about mercy when we are in the new heavens and the new earth and we are being in our the image of God is being surpassed, so to speak. There's an awareness of the mercy of God that Adam did not know in Eden. But you and I now know because of the death and resurrection of Jesus that God had mercy on us despite our sin. He still sent Jesus to redeem us and to restore us and to make all things new. That's mercy. That's grace. That's life changing. The image of God is actually surpassed in Christ than it was in Adam. And that's something you and I can dream about and 
sink into as we consider the weight of that. So those are truths that we want to affirm about the image of God in the life of our church. And as we continue to live our lives in the world that is, being renewed in the image of Christ, being redeemed and restored, there's a sense in which this teaching has to bear some weight on how we interact with the world that is. So we don't just want to affirm the image of God. We want to attend to the image of God. And so I want to lay out in light of this teaching, what are some things that you and I should attend to in light of the fact that human beings are created uniquely in the image of God? And so you'll see in your notes on the back sheet, there's a, several statements there, and I won't spend as much time on all of these, but I do want to dive into a couple of them. First, we want to affirm. This means that we, as a church, anyone identifying with our community, we are going to affirm human dignity despite human depravity. We're going to affirm human dignity despite human depravity. In order to do that, that means we are going to apply our value of life to all of life. Our value of life must be applied to all of life, meaning from the womb and hospice care, meaning those who are healthy, those who are unhealthy, meaning those who we might consider good and those that we might consider bad. We're going aff- to apply our value of life to all of life, to everyone around us. We're going to talk about abortion, but we're not just going to talk about abortion. We're going to talk about orphans. We're not just going to talk about orphans. We're going to talk about widows. We're not just going to talk about widows. The image of God impresses upon us a comprehensive ethic for life. And so we want to apply our value of life to all of life. And I hope and pray that you would join me in figuring out how we're to do that as a church together in that direction. But not only do we want to apply our value of life to all of life, we want to, in light of this, affirm human dignity despite human depravity. We're going to aid those in need. When we see people suffering, when we see people hurting, we're going to aid them. We're going to support them. We're going to leverage our resources to care for them. This is how we attend to the image of God in the world. This means that we're going to be willing to go to the defense of the defenseless. We're going to be willing to serve those that nobody else in the world may want to serve. This is what we do in our attendance to the image of God. We want to aid those in need. This is why when the floods came in Houston, we were willing to send $2,500 to Brazos Point Fellowship Church there, one of our partner churches who supports us and has supported us for years. We were able to send some resources, some finances to help them care for people in their community. This is why we want to do those types of things time and time and time again as a generous people aiding those in need. But in saying that, I don't want to give the impression that we're going to leapfrog the needs in our city to find needs around the world. There's a lot of Needs. There's a lot of hurts in our city that we want to aid, that we want to go to bat for. And there are disciples in our church doing that in some incredibly sacrificial and some incredibly dignifying ways. And it's a privilege from my perspective to see. But not only do we want to aid those in need, we want to advocate for racial and gender equality. This means that as a church affirming human dignity despite human depravity, we're going to advocate for racial and gender equality. Let me just say a brief word about the racial dynamic in this. This means that if you are an ethnic majority like me in this country, it is incumbent upon us to seek understanding of ethnic minorities and their experience in this culture. 
You read about things that happen in St. Louis. You read about things that are happening in various pockets all over the world and, and the frustration and the angst and the fears that ethnic minorities are feeling as a result of a myriad of things happening in our country. You read about those. Our opinion on those are irrelevant. My opinion on how people should feel about something is utterly irrelevant and so is yours. The way we attend to the image of God and advocate for racial equality isn't by having opinions about how we think certain people should feel about certain things. The way we do that is by seeking understanding, stepping into relationship with people who are of ethnic minorities and listening to their stories, hearing them out so that we can understand why they feel the way that they do, what they see in the world that we may not be seeing as an ethnic minority in the a majority in the United States of America. The way we advocate for racial equality is by seeking understanding first and foremost. And so we want to listen to one another. We want to engage in friendships and build bridges and relationships so that we might learn more and empathize and understand where people are coming from. My friend, Dottie Lewis, who's planting a church in urban Atlanta, he's uh, planting a really unique church there in, in one of the hardest, roughest neighborhoods of Atlanta. He's married, he's a, he's a black man married to a white woman. And on two occasions, there have been moments where he's been pulled over while driving and Two officers have gotten out of the police car. They've walked over to his driver's side door, asked him out of the car, and he's had to go around to the back and undergo some questioning from an officer, while the other officer will then go to his wife in the passenger side seat and, and ask her the first question out of their mouths in both instances were, ma'am, are you okay? Ma'am, do you need help? Assuming the worst of the situation, assuming the worst of this guy named Dottie because of the color of his skin, that's not seeking understanding. That's problematic. That's an affront to the image of God. And, and the reality is, if we treat people, if any swath of humanity is treated in an undignified manner, we cannot be surprised or even frustrated when they start acting in an undign, undign, what may be considered an undignified kind of way. That's just how human nature works. So we want to attend to the image of God by advocating for racial equality, by identifying injustice, by identifying racism, by seeking understanding of those whose experiences in this country may be different from those who are of an ethnic majority. And this includes the immigration issue in our country, talking to those who, were, who were, have some fear and angst about some of the policies that are coming down from our government, wondering what does that mean for my family? What does that mean for my kids? What does it mean for this act or that act? Whatever the case may be, we are to attend to the image of God by engaging them, listening to their stories, understanding them, and lovingly serving them in any way that we can so that racial equality may be championed and advocated for. That's how we attend to the image of God. But then I would say also a word about gender dynamic in this text. And I'll say just real brief about this at this time is that we should pay attention to how we're talking about members of the opposite sex. Guys, let's just check the tendency that Guys have to use women as an insult, right? You throw like a girl, you run like a girl, you scream like a girl. We kind of use, and it's, it's, it's a subtle undermining of the image of God. It's not talking about a member, the member of the opposite sex in a dignifying kind of way if we're using them as an, as a, as a, as an insult. 
And so we want to think, we want to be sober-minded, we want to set a different trajectory by speaking in affirming ways of the women in our lives and of the women in this world. That's how we advocate for gender equality. It starts as simply as talking in affirming ways of the women in our lives, recognizing their competencies, recognizing their gifts, celebrating their competencies, celebrating their gifts, being about the things that they're about and seeing them thrive in various fashions in the world that is. But then I would also say, ladies, in how you talk about guys and how you perceive men, how do you talk about them? Are you more conditioned by sitcoms that you see on TV that suggest that every man is a buffoon? Every man is emotionally shallow. Every man is self-absorbed and self-centered. And you kind of get conditioned by thinking Homer Simpson is the stereotypical male in our, in our culture. In our, he's a cartoon. He's not, he's not who guys are. So there's a sense in which, ladies, we, you can talk in affirming ways about men in your lives, men in this church, men in the world. You can celebrate the fact that they are who they are and they are why they are. And you can affirm the dignity of having been created in God's image and how you talk about members of the opposite sex. And we start talking in affirming ways, we'll start acting in affirming ways, and you will see equality start to blossom and bloom in an organic fashion that can shake the earth, starting with the church. So we want to go there and advocating for racial and gender equality. And then the last one you see there, we also want to embrace God's design for human sexuality. This is a big issue in Genesis chapter 1, and you'll see it in Genesis chapter 2 when we study the first family here in a few weeks. But affirming God's design for, gen- for human sexuality, or by embracing God's design. And so one of the ways that we attend to the image of God in this dynamic is recognizing that in a fallen world, there are people who feel alienated from their sexual identity. And that sense of alienation is a deep struggle. That sense of alienation is a hard struggle. And so we attend to the image of God in them by ministering to them in love, in compassion, in mercy, with patience and understanding, recognizing that they feel alienated from their sexual identity. And and so we want to not view them, as I've seen one writer State. We don't want to view those who are feel that way as freaks in any way, shape, or form, right? We want to love people well. We want to be patient with people. We want to serve those who feel alienated from their sexual identity so that they might find healing and hope and who God made them to be and what Jesus intends to make them to be in the future. And so we can't do that unless we're paying attention, exercising sensitivity and patience in those relationships. But by embracing God's design for human sexuality, there's also a dynamic where we recognize that we are sexual creatures. That God created sex. He designed sex. It has a life-flourishing purpose to it. It is a a good gift from God. And so we want to embrace that as well. And so we want to talk about ethics for that as it relates to what the Scripture teaches and who God created us to be. And I believe that if we embrace God's design for human sexuality, seeing ourselves as sexual creatures, embracing the ethics that are laid out in the scriptures as it relates to sex, where you find it flourishing in the covenant of marriage, because that's where you have vulnerability and and security all wrapped into that relationship so that you can explore and engage that in in a free, life-flourishing kind of way. When we embrace that, you know what happens? When we begin to promote that ethic in our lives and in the church, we begin to starve. We begin to starve the dehumanizing industries that are tied to a distortion of sex in the world that is. 
We begin to starve pornography. We begin to starve prostitution. We begin to starve human trafficking, where numbers say that 75 to 80 percent of those who are trafficked in this world wind up in prostitution or pornography. When you and I embrace God's design for sex and sexuality, we starve these dehumanizing industries, and life is able to flourish for far more people than it's flourishing for right now as a result of those industries. And so we want to attend to the image of God by embracing God's design for human sexuality. We'll explore that in more depth in the future. And then that last dynamic there, you're going to see that we want to not only affirm human dignity despite human depravity, we want to steward the resources of God's good creation so that all life flourishes. And the way we steward resources are, here's a few. One, we want to make the best use of our time. We want to make the best use of the time that we've been given. God, our time on earth is a gift from God. He's going to determine how long or how short that time may be. While we're here, we want to make the best use of our time. But now we want to make the best use of our time living for kingdom purposes, seeing the image of God restored in us and then reflected out of us. We want to take care of our space. We want to make the best use of our time. We want to take care of the space that we're in. We want to give ourselves to creation care, being responsible for whatever impact we are personally and in our community is having upon the environment and various ways. And so we want to take care of the space that we have been given. We also want to be generous with our finances. We want to steward resources of God's good creation to see life flourish by being generous with our finances. This is why we worship through giving week in and week out. This is why when you follow Jesus, everything comes to Jesus and you start leveraging your resources, including your finances, to see life flourish. And so I would encourage you, disciple, make sure that you're fostering a rhythm of Worship through giving in your life, giving to support the church, giving to advance the gospel, giving to bring relief to the poor. We want to be good stewards in that regard. We also want to do this by redeeming the value of our experiences. One of the beauties of our God is he brings value out of every experience, even our worst experiences in life. There's potential for those experiences to be flipped towards helping other people flourish. And so we want to see how God can take our worst moments and bring beauty from them so that we can be of service to those around us. We want to steward our resources well. And then lastly, we want to cultivate our skills and competencies. Whatever talents, whatever skills, whatever competencies you have, you want to engage God's good creation and seeing life flourish, whether that's art or technology, whether it's education or counseling, you want to be about the things that God is about as the image of God is being restored in you. So let me ask you these two questions as we draw this to a close. One, is the image of God being restored in you? Do you have a relationship with Jesus? Are you beholding the glory of God in the person and work of Jesus? And is that bouncing off of you? Are you is, it, is, your, is the image of God being restored in you? And then secondly, how are you attending to the image of God with the life that you've been given? How are you affirming the Imago Day, and how are you attending to it? That's the question we want to pray through as a church, and let's do that now. God, would you help us as we process these truths? God, I recognize that there's a lot in this, and, and we're going to need your Spirit's help to, to process and to think and to dialogue and to explore and to, to be empowered to affirm the image of God and to attend to the image of God. Would you give us grace to do that well? as those who are being renewed 
day in and day out into the image of Christ. God, would you let that be so in Jesus' name? Amen.